Thanks for listening to our podcast. The following is a ministry of Orchard Bible Church in Centennial, Colorado. Please join us on Sunday mornings. For more details, visit us online at orchardbible.org. Today's scripture reading is from Matthew 7, verse 12. This is the word of God. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. Let's open our time in prayer. Our Father, we're so grateful for your beautiful salvation. We're so grateful for your Son. And we're grateful for your truth. We're grateful for the the life-changing words, the life-giving words in this Sermon on the Mount. And we just pray, Lord, as we enter a very practical portion of Scripture that you would apply these things to our minds, our hearts, and ultimately the way we live would be transformed uh, by the power of the Holy Spirit for Jesus' sake. Amen. Please be seated. If you had to guess what the most popular verse in the Bible has been over the last 50 years, you might think of John 3.16, which still shows up between the uprights occasionally when someone kicks a field goal. Or you might think of the verse we just heard on the golden rule, do unto others. But it's very likely that the most popular verse in the Bible over the last half century and, one, and the one most memorized by unbelievers is the first verse in our passage today. Judge not that ye not be judged. Those who have no belief in God still affirm that verse is divinely inspired. People who have never even read the Bible have memorized that verse and even memorized it in the King James. And the most often quoted at or about Christians by those who do not want their own actions to be evaluated by someone else's morality. But times have changed, have they not? In the past, if you had the audacity to insist on moral absolutes, you were accused of being judgmental. Well, the tables have turned. Our society now is very comfortable judging others and believes very strongly in moral absolutes. Only now... The standard of judgment is not the word of God, but rather the new orthodoxy of the sexual and gender revolutionaries. If you dare speak out against that moral authority, you will be judged and condemned, and you will be given no quarter, no mercy. Well, despite this phenomenon in our culture, fairly recently shifting to this sort of new judgmentalism, Over the past 50 years or so, this verse, as popular as it's been, has basically been misunderstood, as we will see. As we near the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus moves from personal temptations to interpersonal temptations. How we view others, how we engage others, and how we might do so in the wrong way. I invite you to follow along in your sermon outline, as was mentioned Before we dive in, just a trivial note for you English nerds, I hope you appreciate my sermon title of Planks, Pigs, and Prayers. My first choice was of specs, swine, and supplication, but unfortunately, I really like that, but that did not fit on the bulletin, so here we are. (laughs) Number one, 
relating to believers. Let's start reading in verse 1 together. Judge not that you not be judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when there is the log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Who are you to judge? Okay, it's clear from referencing your brother that Jesus is talking about relationships between believers in these first five verses, implied, of course, is sister. In other words, this instruction is regarding how we relate to other Christians. Jesus is not prohibiting all judgments. The Russian author Tolstoy famously argued that this verse required the abolishment of the entire court system of public justice. That's clearly not what Jesus is teaching. And he's certainly not saying we shouldn't make judgments about actions or people. In the next week's passage, just a few uh, verses later after these, Jesus instructs us to make one judgment after another. Enter the narrow gate, not the wide one. Build your house on the rock, not the sand. Listen to true teachers, not false ones. Well, how do you know? You recognize them by their fruit. In other words, it requires good judgment about them. In our passage today, in our next point, we will look at not throwing holy things to dogs or pigs. Well, how do you discern dogs and pigs? You make a judgment about people. Even the verses we just read, Jesus is instructing us to carefully remove something which is bad from the eye of our fellow Christian, which requires judgment to discern what is bad. So clearly... Jesus is not requiring his disciples to suspend or abandon judgment or instructing them to not be discerning. Well, then, what does he mean? What kind of judgment is Jesus prohibiting? Well, we can learn a lot from the humorous imagery that he uses. And yes, it's meant to be cartoonish. You see a speck in your brother's eye, and you want to take it out. The word is like a splinter of wood or some small irritant in their eye, and you want to remove it. Now, that's a delicate process, isn't it? You don't want to make it worse. I mean, if I have something in my eye and you're going to help me take it out, I'm going to need you to be really careful, right? But we don't see is that you have something in your own eye. And it's a log, also translated plank or beam. It was the kind of beam used on a roof or the mast of a ship, it's meant to be a ridiculous contrast. You have this log sticking out so far from your eye, you're going to hurt somebody if you get close. You intend to do something that requires extreme care and precision. You have this beam swinging around that's going to harm, not heal. So there are two main things wrong in this image about this kind of wrong kind of judgment. First, it's hypocritical, meaning... You're coming across like you don't have any faults and you're going to call someone out for their fault when you actually have something far worse in your own eye than they do. The second thing is it's not loving. You're going to harm, not help the person with the speck. This kind of judgment is not coming from a place of love. It's coming from a place of condemnation and 
a critical spirit. Let's lean a little more into each of these. The wrong kind of judgment. Hypocrisy and lack of love. Jesus started chapter 6 with hypocrisy. Remember, beware of practicing your righteousness before others. There's a, there's a pretending like you're more righteous than others. That's the spirit here. Swooping in to confront someone as if you have no faults. Pretending like you don't have anything in your eye. Acting with a superiority over someone else. Are you like God to them? Are you able to see their hearts and understand their motives? Only God can do that. Lloyd-Jones says this kind of judgment is not so much on what they've done, but on who they are. A judgment on the person themselves, something only God can do. Now note that Jesus includes a warning here for this wrong kind of judgment in verse 2. The grammar here implies you will be judged by God with the measure you use. If you judge harshly, then you are going to be judged harshly by God. If you judge mercifully, you will be judged mercifully by God. James says something similar in his letter, chapter 2. Judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who's not been merciful. If you've been transformed into kingdom life, this kingdom life by the power of Christ, as a spirit-filled believer, you've been transformed by the mercy you've been shown by God on the cross. Part of that transformation, if it's legitimate, should result in showing mercy to others, not condemning them harshly. Doriani says this, If we know God's standards well enough to judge others by them, then we know them well enough to be judged by them ourselves. When we measure others by a standard, it shows that we accept that standard. So God can judge us by it. God can ask, if you condemn others for telling half-truths, do you tell half-truths? If you condemn those who break commitments, do you ever break a commitment? If you condemn theft, are you honest financially? If you hate careless remarks that hurt others, do you watch your words? Since we all violate the standards we use to measure others, we're all liable to God's judgment. But if we hope to receive mercy from God, we ought to show that transformational mercy to others. So we need to avoid hypocritical condemnation. A dramatic example of this was in our Life of David series, you remember? When the prophet Nathan tells King David the story about the ewe lamb and how this rich man took advantage David was outraged. That man deserves to die. I've heard enough. Condemned. Such hypocrisy as he had murdered a man and taken his wife for himself. So one aspect of Jesus' command here is self-examination. Come down from your high horse, as it were, and point your critical analysis to yourself first. It's important to remember that The scribes and Pharisees are not the main target here. His disciples were doing this, being judgmental. There's an inclination even for true believers toward hypocritical judgment. We all naturally find it easy, don't we, to perceive the faults of others and be blinded to our own faults. One interesting medium to watch this is in post-game interviews after a loss. Good coaches or players know they need to be self-critical. I mean, it would be so easy for them to say, yeah, well, he dropped the ball, that's why we lost, or he missed the field goal, or we would have won. 
But it's refreshing to hear them say, I need to get better too. You know, I need to put that player in a, in a situation where they can be successful. And I didn't do that. So there needs to be humility and self-examination to avoid hypocrisy. That's one thing. The other thing wrong with this kind of judgment is the context of love that's completely missing. John Wesley said this well. The judging that Jesus condemns here is thinking about another person in a way that's contrary to love. Remember Greg's message about practicing your righteousness before others in the first part of chapter 6. What motivates? Remember that? Well, the question here is, what motivates removing the speck from your brother's eye? What's your heart attitude for calling someone out? Is it because you need to set that person straight? They need to know they got a problem? Or is it because you love them and you're concerned about them? You're concerned about how your relationship with them will be affected. It's impossible to exercise love with a critical spirit, just like it's impossible to remove a speck with a beam coming out from your face. So examine your motive. If you want to remove a speck in someone's eye, it should come from a place of love. Your love you love that person. You want to help them by pointing out and removing the speck. If it comes from a critical spirit or fault finder, you're going to be negative and you're going to be destructive. You're going to attribute the worst possible motives to them. However, if it comes from a place of love and concern for them, your approach is going to be much more humble, right? So first, examine yourself, as we've already discussed. Deal with the log in your own eye before God. You can't help them if you're in a worse state. You can't help someone from drowning if you're sinking further under the water yourself. So first, deal with your own sin. But then, help them out of love. Okay, let God's love flow through you to help them. Jim Boyce illustrates this with a, his visit to Europe in the early 1970s. He was in a high-rise apartment in France along the mighty Rhine River just across the water from Germany. He looked down from the apartment to an old-fashioned lock that existed at one time to direct the water from the Rhine across the flatlands of France. At one time in the past, the channel was useful. But when we look further down, large beams had been used to choke the flow of the river. The power of the river was still present. It was running onto the north through Germany. But the beams were blocking the channel, and now nothing was coming through but a trickle. The lock itself was closed by refuse, and now nothing but, nothing but uh, refuse as a cul-de-sac, which had no outlet. If you have a beam blocking the flow of God's love in your life, like these beams blocking the river, the only solution is Jesus. He's able to extract the beams so that you can see clearly that, how, that, how to show that loving correction to others. The mighty river of love through the Holy Spirit is powerful regardless if he's working through you or not, but he can work through you and flow out of you to help others. Remember the goal in verse 5 is not just to take the log out of your own eye. It is so that, notice, you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. If we didn't have the second half of verse 5, it would seem Jesus is just saying, mind your own business. 
But that's not what he's saying. He doesn't stop with removing the log in your eye. He continues with the delicate process to remove a speck from your brother's eye. Revealing someone's sin to them is a delicate process, isn't it? It requires careful thinking and prayer to do it. And it requires great love. But great love also requires that you do it. Okay, we, need, we, we need to reveal these things to one another in the right spirit, in the right way. As O'Donnell says, I love this, Jesus teaches us the loving art of speck removal. Okay, the early church father Chrysostom said it this way, correct your brother, not as a foe, nor as an adversary exacting a penalty, but as a physician. Think about the times you've been confronted, both rightly and wrongly. When it's done rightly, if you have the Holy Spirit, you'll receive it. I, I still vividly remember a time almost 30 years ago when a sister in the Lord confronted me. She was humble. She acknowledged she may have misunderstood something or didn't have all the facts. But here's the thing. It was obvious to me this was painful for her to do. She was not a confrontational person. She certainly wasn't enjoying it. She obviously had labored and prayed about how to confront me. It was so clearly from a place of love. She was concerned about how the relationship between us and how this confrontation would affect that. I was disarmed and convicted by the Holy Spirit. I confessed and repented by God's grace. I had a speck I didn't see that needed removal. And she was like a careful physician. That's what Jesus is talking about. Only after you've examined your own eyes for logs, worked in prayer, repentance, maybe even asking others to evaluate you for your motives, examine you, and dealing with those sins before the Lord, then consider bringing this matter up about the speck. We all need Jesus' loving art of speck removal. That's his instruction relating to believers. And I wanted to spend adequate time on those important verses. So the rest of these points in your bulletin will be necessarily shorter. Number two, relating to aggressive unbelievers. Let's read in verse six. Do not give dogs what is holy and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. As the King James indelibly renders it, neither cast ye your pearls before swine. These are clearly metaphors, of course. So let's think first about the original images and what they would have meant then, and then think about how it applies to us today. Dogs in this culture were not like Dexter, our family pet who begs at the dinner table. They were wild street dogs. When, when sacrifices were made at the temple, portions of the meat were given to the priests and their families for food. But meat killed from an animal in the wild was given to dogs. Okay, you would never give dogs the meat from the sacrifices. That would be to give dogs what is holy. Similarly, pigs were not like Wilbur from Charlotte's Web, and not just because they didn't talk, but more like wild boars. They were actually dangerous. They're known for being filthy, greedy, and vicious. If you threw a precious pearl before a pig, once they realized it wasn't food, 
they would trample it down and come after you. Okay, the, the beauty and value of the pearl is not only lost on the pig, they just treat it with disdain. Then they turn to you in disdain and attack you. So the metaphor is that you don't give what is holy or valuable to someone who will treat it with disdain and abuse you. In this context, what is holy and valuable is the gospel truths of the kingdom, which is central to Jesus' person and message throughout his ministry. Now, who are the dogs and pigs? First of all, note again, this requires discernment and making a judgment about people, okay? Who constitutes a dog or pig? It cannot mean unbelievers in general, because then you'd never proclaim the gospel truths to anyone. I think the book of Proverbs is very helpful here. I know that many of you orchard women studied this great book of wisdom last fall. And there are different types of people in Proverbs for which different actions are required. There are the wise, those who have embraced God's truth and are living accordingly. But there are also fools. And, and fool is not a, an intellectual category. It's a moral one. Okay, those who have not embraced God's truth. But there are different categories of fools in Proverbs. And Bruce Waltke, a Proverbs scholar, is so helpful on this. As he describes three categories of the fools in Proverbs. The first category is called the simple. Those who are uncommitted. Okay, in today's age, we might think of kids who grew up in a Christian home. They think, well, maybe this Jesus my parents worship is the truth. But I, I kind of want to leave my options open. I'm, I don't want to commit yet. Okay, which is obviously very unwise to be open to a godless life because the most likely path is destruction. But at this point, the simple are just uncommitted. A second category is what most translations just call fool. They are those who have rejected the truth but are still open. I'm living my own way. I'm still listening, open to more information. I know this Jesus stuff is important to you. It's just not for me. Live and let live. Okay, most unbelievers, we know, would fall into this category. Then finally, there's the scoffer or the mocker in some translations. They've not only rejected the truth, but openly mock those who believe it. They've chewed up the truth and spit it out. They're not open to more information. They actively insult the godly. They're on the offensive against the kingdom. Waltke describes them as irredeemable. They are aggressive unbelievers. It is only this last category, the mocker, the scoffer, who represent the dogs and pigs here. Proverbs 9, for instance, says this. Whoever corrects a scoffer gets himself abuse. And he who reproves a wicked man incurs injury. You will only be abused if you try to correct the scoffer. Offering kingdom truths and good faith, gospel nuggets to them, will only put them in a situation where they will sin against you again and again. And you will be hurt. And Jesus wants to protect you from unnecessary injury. Don't engage. Get numerous examples we could think of of this truth on social media. But I'll just... Think about both Jesus and Paul as great examples for this kind of discernment. Jesus always engaged and, and answered those who were truly seeking, didn't he? Didn't matter who they were, from the lowest in society to the highest. Even Pontius Pilate, who had genuine questions, Jesus answered him. But Jesus did not answer Herod. Herod was not interested 
in the truth. He knew more than almost anyone about Jesus, his works, his claims. He adamantly rejected him and his authority. Herod asked Jesus to do a miracle. He just wanted to see some kind of magic trick. He wasn't sincere. So Jesus did not even answer him. He did not engage the scoffer. He did not give what is holy to dogs. Likewise, the Apostle Paul modeled this in his missionary work. If people had questions, doubts, or even direct challenges, but remained open, he continued the dialogue. And that should be our attitude with almost with nearly all unbelievers. Those with genuine questions or challenges against what we believe. But if they drove the apostle out of town, he shook the dust off his feet and left. He's not engaging mockers, not throwing pearls before swine. So we must use discernment relating to unbelievers who aggressively oppose our message. Continuing to proclaim to them precious truths about Jesus will only harden them and increase their condemnation and also reap, uh, heap unnecessary abuse upon ourselves. Number three, relating to God the Father. Let's start reading in verse seven. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks, it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then who are evil know, to give, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give you good things to those who ask him? These verses have to do with prayer, specifically prayers of supplication or petition. Jesus instructs us to ask, seek, and knock. And he promises that you'll receive. And implied in the grammar here is persistence, like we see in, in the parable of the persistent widow in Luke 18, continuing to plead with the judge to hear her case. Same thing here. In fact, the Holman Christian Standard Bible translates this verse, keep asking, keep seeking, keep knocking. And like with the unjust judge in that parable, Jesus makes a, a contrast here, the greater to lesser to greater, keep, uh, between sinful parents and God our Father. So parents, even though they're evil, in other words, we're selfish by nature, parents. We still love our children and give them only good gifts when they ask. I mean, there are two practical jokes here that increase in severity. The first one is that your hungry child asks you for bread and you give him a rock. That's just not funny. <laughs> okay? But the second one, your child asks for a fish and you give him a serpent. That's actually dangerous. Okay? The answer to Jesus' rhetorical question is, of course not. Okay, even though you're selfish, you'd never do that to your child who's sincerely hungry, asking for something you have the power to give. Well, God is not tainted by evil or selfishness. How much more? Will he only give good things to those children who ask? Now, good parents withhold things, don't they, sometimes, from their children when it isn't good for them. We sometimes tell them no in order to disciple them. Sometimes we know giving them what they ask wouldn't be good for them. Or sometimes we just want to teach our children persistence or patience or courtesy. 
Certainly our good Father in heaven withholds things from us for the same reason. But I'll confess, sometimes I'm selfish enough as a parent that my own peace supersedes what's good for my kids. I don't know if you've been there, but sometimes I'll be badgered for something and I'll just say, fine, go ahead. Even though I know it probably isn't the best for them, I just don't want to deal with it anymore. Consider that our Father in heaven never does that with us. He never just gives us something because he's tired of dealing with us and it might not be good for us. He only gives good gifts when we ask. Gifts that are truly good for us because he's wise. I appreciated Old Testament scholar Alec Moter's honesty when he said this, if it were the case that whatever whatever we ask, God was pledged to give, I for one would never pray again because I would not have sufficient confidence in my own wisdom to ask God for anything. And if you, I think if you consider, he says, you will agree. As Stott says, being good, our heavenly father gives only good gifts to his children who ask. Being wise as well, he knows which gifts are good and which are not. Lloyd-Jones agrees. I thank God, he says, that he is not prepared to do anything I may chance to ask him. I am profoundly grateful to God that he did not grant me certain things for which I asked and that he shut certain doors in my face. Now, along with this, what might be common sense, we cannot read this teaching on prayer in isolation. We need to consider the context here and also the teaching on prayer elsewhere. The immediate context, interestingly, is how to relate to believers and aggressive unbelievers. Okay, the loving art of speck removal, seeing your own sin, then helping others to see their sin, and then when to withdraw from, from an aggressive unbeliever. Well, both of these situations require wisdom, don't they? What if you're not sure? Well, that's one reason I really appreciate what James teaches us on the matter. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all, without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith, not doubting, not double-minded, right? Again, the kind of doubt James refers to there is moral doubt. Are you double-minded? Are you on the fence between the kingdom priorities and your own selfishness? If you're on the fence, you're not going to get the wisdom you asked for, James says. You need to be all in with Jesus and his kingdom agenda to be given this wisdom. That's so helpful. Okay, are we wanting to remove the speck, for instance, for kingdom purposes or for our own agenda? Answer that question before asking God for wisdom, because otherwise you're double-minded. But if this confrontation is for kingdom purposes and out of love for that brother or sister, the Lord will give you the wisdom that you asked for. What are other good things we might ask for when we consider the Sermon on the Mount? Strength to resist temptation, deliverance from Satan, the power to proclaim the gospel, heeding the golden rule, which we'll look at next. What's he already told us to ask for and to seek first? The kingdom of God and his righteousness, right? Kingdom life is the fundamental good thing in the Sermon on the Mount. As one scholar said, For most of us, the problem is not that we're too eager to ask for the wrong things. 
The problem is that we're not eager enough to ask for the right things. Jesus says if you hunger and thirst for righteousness, you'll be satisfied. Do you believe that? The kingdom is yours if you'll be poor in spirit, if you'll recognize your desperate need for God and his righteousness, awareness of your own sin and the need of his forgiveness. He will give you his righteousness, his Holy Spirit, the forgiveness of sins. All the blessings and good things in these chapters are for those who come humbly and seek and knock and ask for the kingdom life that comes only through Jesus. I hope you'll do that this morning if you don't have that, if you don't have him. Will you come to him in desperation for the forgiveness of sins? He desires a relationship with you, but you need to ask him. In fact, the first and only prayer God will hear from an unbeliever is this plea for salvation based on the death and resurrection of Jesus. I'd love to talk to you afterward if you have questions or want to know more about that. Of all the things to ask for, to seek and knock until you get it is kingdom life in Jesus Christ. Now, for all, those already in Christ, those part of this kingdom... There are many other good things to ask for. And let's be honest, we can be discouraged at times from this command to continually keep asking. Let me just talk about a couple of reasons we might be discouraged. The first reason is just bad theology. Okay, you can wrongly think, you can wrongly think that, well, if God knows everything, which he does, what's the point in asking him? But if you study prayer throughout the Bible, you'll see that the way prayer works is that God in his sovereign control of the universe, which is true, the way he created things though, the way he created human beings, the way he set it up in such a way where he genuinely interacts with humans who pray, where, where things actually change as a result of prayer. There's certainly mystery in that relationship, but it is undeniable from scripture that prayer is a means God uses for him to act as James says, you do not have because you do not ask God. But there's another reason you might be discouraged from persisting in prayer, and it's a harder one. And that's when prayers go unanswered for a long period of time. I appreciated the honesty from one scholar who wrote this. Sometimes it is discouraging, and I'd be a liar if I didn't admit that. But I continue to lay my petitions before God in faith, trust, and hope. Sometimes hope lags behind our petitions, and sometimes hope sustains us. But I keep on praying because I believe that God is good. And isn't it interesting, that's the motivation Jesus uses here to tell us to pray. He doesn't beat us over the head and try to make us guilty for not praying. He paints for you, brother and sister, a, an accurate vision of the goodness of your Father in heaven. Knowing God's goodness, knowing God's love, knowing his wisdom prompts us to pray, right? I love the words from that great hymn. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear, all because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. So that's relating to our good, good Father. Finally, this morning, number four, relating to everyone. 
Let's read in verse 12. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. This has been called the golden rule, and it existed in some forms before Jesus. One ancient teacher's maxim was this, do not do to others what is hateful to you. What Jesus does is turn it positively into something that flows from loving our neighbor, which is distinctly Jesus. This command, Jesus says, is the law and the prophets. Fascinating. In other words, the essence of the moral teaching throughout our Old Testament can be boiled down to this. Whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. As Paul says in Galatians 5, for the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. Back in chapter 5, the beginning of Jesus' sermon, he said he came to fulfill the law. Okay? So this whole sermon explains the true meaning of the whole law. If we think about the Ten Commandments, for instance, as sort of a summary of the law. Some have noted that the first part of chapter 6 fulfills the commands concerning our relationship with God, the first few of the Ten Commandments. And the rest of chapter 6 through our passage today fulfills the commands concerning our relationship with others. Don Carson notes this little statement is powerful yet flexible. Think about this. Instead of having thousands upon thousands of commands for every possible scenario and permutation dealing with people. It's a governing principle that can be applied to any situation. Let's just think about the scenarios we looked at earlier in our passage today. Even with aggressive unbelievers, think about this. When you continue to offer wisdom to a scoffer, when you continue to offer kingdom truths to someone who only abuses you as a result, if I were that abuser who will one day know the truth, even though too late, I would not want additional condemnation heaped upon me, which is what would happen if I'm a scoffer and you continue to throw precious gospel truths at me. Maybe they need to hear it from somebody else. They only to trample on you time and time again. You'd just be enabling me to add to the judgment that's mounting up against me. Frankly, hardening me to the truth like antibodies. I become more resistant and immune to gospel truth. Additionally, you'd be enabling me to further sin against you by abusing you. So even in that case, not throwing pearls before swine is following this rule. And certainly as a believer, if I have a blind spot or speck in my eye, I don't want to be judged with a critical spirit, but I do want to be helped, okay? If there's something I'm doing that's hurting others, is some behavior that's damaging my spiritual life, I want to be told. So, so please help me remove my speck, but I would want you to do it generously and humbly. Don't, don't assume you know my motives. I certainly don't want you to come at me with an air of superiority that comes across like you don't have any sin, but don't be afraid to talk to me about my speck, right? I need help. That's what we would want others to do to us. And finally, regardless of my situation, I would want you to pray about what to do. I would want you to earnestly seek and ask the Lord's wisdom on how to approach me. So this golden rule is an all-encompassing principle for the people of God to follow. But let's be really clear. No one can do this perfectly, can they? 
No one can do to others exactly as they wished others would do to them, which is why we need the Holy Spirit. Another good thing, par excellence, a power, a person, and a presence that Jesus promises to those who ask. Let me just end by thinking very practically about this command, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. I want to just ask that you let the Holy Spirit guide your thinking as I walk through some things. Do you have someone in your life that needs your forgiveness? Maybe they've apologized to you, and they need to hear you say to them, I forgive you. Wouldn't you want to be forgiven? More generally, Chuck Swindoll envisions three steps applying this golden rule, and I'll close with this. Again, let the Holy Spirit guide you, brother or sister. First, think about a sticky situation that you have going on right now that involves another person. Okay? Think about that. Many, if not most of us, probably have numerous examples, but at least one sticky situation with someone that hasn't been resolved. Okay? Think about that. Now, second, engage your imagination. Okay, instead of trying to think of a specific law or verse or commandment to follow, put yourself in the other person's shoes, okay? And ask from their shoes, if I had their perspective, what would I need most? Okay? How would I like to be treated if I were in their place, okay? The third step, do it. Do that thing. This last step is very simple, but very profound. Listen, it is profound because when you do that, you will be acting just like Jesus. Please stand with me as we close. Our Father, we're so grateful for Jesus. We're so grateful for the example that he's given us, for the words that he's spoken to us, the teaching. But most thankful this morning for the forgiveness of sins that he offers in his cross and resurrection. So Lord, I pray for those here this morning that do not know you. May they repent of their sin. May they confess their selfishness. May they lean on Jesus as their righteousness. May they receive the Holy Spirit, which you promise to any who ask in good faith. May they come cleanly before you, humbly, desperate for you. And may you answer them with the person of Jesus Christ to begin a relationship with them that will last through eternity. And Father, for all of us here this morning, those who have the privilege of knowing you for longer, may we heed these words, Lord. May we heed these words of humility and love, but that we would confront one another in the right spirit, but that we would deal with our own sin first. May we be a healthy church in that regard, not afraid to confront, but not eager to confront. 
be guided by your Holy Spirit. And Lord, for those in our lives who maybe we need to dial back our connection with, our engagement with, because they seem to be mockers, fools, guide us in that wisdom, Lord. And Father, for those here who have been praying for many, many years for things, give them the strength to continue to persist in coming to our good Father who knows what's best but wants to hear us ask. We're so grateful for your love for us. We're so grateful for Jesus. Dismiss us now in his name.